Studies have shown that certain patients living with inflammatory bowel disease, or IBD, have a higher risk of developing colorectal cancer. Each year, 147,000 new cases of colorectal cancer are diagnosed in the United States, and more than 57,000 people die from the disease. Although less than 1% of people diagnosed with colorectal cancer, or CRC, have IBD, after genetic causes such as familial adenomatous polyposis, or FAP, and hereditary non-polyposis colorectal cancer, or HNPCC, IBD ranks as the third highest risk factor for the development of CRC. Of importance, colorectal cancer develops in patients with IBD at a much younger age than those without IBD. Despite the risk factors, colorectal cancer is highly treatable in the early stages, making guidelines on endoscopic screening and surveillance and detection of dysplasia beneficial to this population. You're listening to CCFA Perspectives, Crohn's and Colitis Updates on ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Karen Heller, Chief Scientific Officer at the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America. Joining me today to discuss surveillance for colorectal cancer and IBD is gastroenterologist Dr. Francis Ferre, Professor of Medicine and Co-Director of the Center for Digestive Disorders at Boston University School of Medicine. Dr. Ferre, welcome to ReachMD. Thanks for the opportunity to speak with you and the other listeners on this important program. We are so delighted to have you. I want to jump in right away with our first question. To start, are patients with IBD at increased risk for colorectal cancer? And if so, what are some of the key risk factors? Well, thankfully, not all patients with ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease are at increased risk. And we'll talk about the risk factors and the specific subsets of patients that are at risk. In general, the patients that are at increased risk are those with extensive ulcerative colitis and those with Crohn's disease of the colon involving at least a third of the colon. Now, if we look at risk factors for patients to develop colorectal cancer or colorectal neoplasia, because we'd like to talk about both cancer and the precursor, which is dysplasia. The number one risk factor for developing cancer is having dysplasia on a previous colonoscopy. And that dysplasia can be something that we call invisible or flat, or it can be polypoid. And we'll talk about this in a little bit more detail. After dysplasia, the next most important factor is the duration of colitis. The risk of developing ulcerative colitis-related colorectal neoplasia increases after about eight years after the onset of the disease. It's important, however, to realize, Karen, we begin the clock ticking not when the diagnosis is made, but rather when the patient began symptoms. So if someone is diagnosed in 2010, but they had symptoms since, let's say, 2008, and now it's 2016, they've had disease for eight years, not six years. Now, the next most important factor is the extent of disease. So patients with ulcerative proctitis or even a distal ulcerative proctosigmoiditis are not at increased risk of developing cancer. The risk is intermediate in left-sided colitis and highest in pancolitis. Other factors that are important are the presence of primary sclerosing cholangitis, family history of colon cancer, with the highest risk being in first-degree relatives that were diagnosed with colorectal cancer prior to the age of 50, age of onset, so pediatric or Adolescent IBD onset is more concerned than someone who's diagnosed in their 40s or 50s. Another important factor are endoscopic findings. 
If you encounter a stricture, multiple pseudopolyps, or a foreshortened colon, those all increase the risk of developing colorectal cancer or dysplasia in an IBD patients. Interestingly enough, recent data suggested that men have an increased risk of developing colon cancer compared to women. In some studies, the standard incidence ratios are about 2.6 in men and about 1.9 in women. And then finally, the severity of endoscopic inflammation and histologic inflammation predicts an increased risk of developing uh, colorectal neoplasia. Now, of all the things that I just mentioned to you, previous dysplasia, duration of colitis, extent, primary sclerosis and cholangitis, family history of colorectal cancer, age, endoscopic findings, male gender, none of those are modifiable. In fact, the only thing that's modifiable is the severity of endoscopic inflammation. So that's where we as gastroenterologists want to choose the best medicines to try to get the inflammation under control. Earlier, you had asked a question about trying to gauge the risk. It's 1% at 10 years, 2% at 20 years, and 5% for those individuals with disease duration greater than 20 years. But again, that's all comers, and certain specific subgroups have an increased risk, and those are the ones we want to target for our surveillance strategies. It's very important what you've just said, focusing in particularly on the fact that it's not when you've seen the patient from diagnosis in terms of duration of the disease, but rather, as you mentioned, the symptoms and when the disease may have really started. And clearly, thank you so much for really emphasizing that not all of these patients are at the same risk and really specifying what are the risks associated with certain characteristics of the disease in the patient. Can you also tell me more now about the stratification of high risk and low risk for colorectal cancer and or advanced neoplasia? You've already talked a lot about that, but I don't know if you want to summarize how you would stratify those at high risk versus low risk. So this has been addressed by guidelines both by the ASGE, the AGA, the CCFA, and the British Society of Gastroenterology. Clearly, the highest risk of developing colorectal neoplasia, including dysplasia or cancer, occurs in those individuals with extensive colitis, moderate, severe, active, ongoing endoscopic and histologic inflammation, or those that have had a stricture of the colon, as well as those who've had dysplasia on a previous scope, those with PSC or even transplant for PSC, and then finally those with a family history of colorectal cancer prior to the age of 50. Those are patients that almost certainly need regular colonoscopy on a yearly basis. And then there's a group of individuals that have no active inflammation or have limited disease. And those individuals on colonoscopy often look completely normal. That's a group that we could potentially spread out the intervals to as long as three years. Although the British Society of Gastroenterology suggests those individuals can have colonoscopy every five years, American societies have not yet gone to intervals that long, and we would recommend that the low-risk individuals have colonoscopy every three years. If you are just tuning in, you're listening to CCFA Perspectives, Crohn's and Colitis Updates on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Karen Heller, and I'm speaking with Dr. Francis Faure, Professor of Medicine and Co-Director of the Center for Digestive Disorders at Boston University School of Medicine. So, Dr. Frey, what is the effectiveness of surveillance colonoscopy in patients with IBD, and how should it be performed? Well, as you know, 
gastroenterologists have embraced colonoscopy as the technique of choice to screen for colorectal neoplasia in patients with ulcerative colitis and extensive Crohn's disease of the colon. It's the standard of care. However, there's really no randomized controlled trials that have shown this, nor would you really expect that one would ever be done due to ethical issues. I can point out to several studies that have been done that formulated our approach to doing surveillance colonoscopy. The one that I'd like to review with you is one that was just published in the last several years by a group from Boston, the Mass General Hospital, Ashwin Ananta Christian and his colleagues. And this was a retrospective study of close to 7,000 patients with inflammatory bowel disease seen over a period of time at the Brigham Women's Hospital and Mass General. And the primary outcome of this study was a diagnosis of colorectal cancer in patients undergoing a surveillance colonoscopy within the previous 36 months. Now, to give you an example of how important this is, of those 6,800 patients, 154 developed colorectal cancer. Now, the incidence of developing colorectal cancer among patients with and without a recent colonoscopy was 1.6 and 2.7% respectively, and this was statistically significant. And these changes persisted after doing uh, multivariate analysis. So if you had a colonoscopy within the previous 6 to 36 months, you had a, in addition to having a lower chance of developing colorectal cancer, you also had a reduced mortality. The odds ratio was about 0.34. So the conclusion of the office, and this is about as good as we're going to get for evidence that colonoscopy is a preferred method for doing surveillance, was that a recent colonoscopy, and this was within 36 months, was associated with a reduced incidence of both colorectal cancer in patients with IBD as well as lower mortality. This is certainly convincing evidence to me that moving forward and incorporating colonoscopy into your practice as a way of reducing colorectal neoplasia in our IBD patients is warranted. And what role do newer imaging techniques play in identifying and managing dysplasia? Well, there have been several advances in colonoscopic techniques used to diagnose colorectal neoplasia. First and foremost has been the use of our video endoscopes. When I was in training, we used fiber optic endoscopes, and the images were quite limited. So the advent of video endoscopes has really allowed us to see the mucosa much better. In addition, just like doing surveillance colonoscopy in non-IBD patients, we've embraced the use of split-dose bowel preps, and these split-dose bowel preps really allow us to prepare the colon in a way that we can see the mucosa nicely. And as I mentioned earlier, we now have better medications that heal the inflammation. If the colon is healed, it just gives us a better chance to see the abnormalities that we're trying to identify. Now, over the last 10 years, the biggest advance other than the use of video endoscopes has been chromoendoscopy. Now, chromoendoscopy is the use of dyes that we apply via the colonoscope, and we can do it one of two ways. We can use a spray catheter or we can put the dye in the foot pedal of the water jet and then spray the colon on withdrawal of the colonoscope. We have two dyes that we tend to use. One is methylene blue. That's an absorptive dye. And then the second one is indigo carmine, which is a, a dye that just basically highlights abnormalities in the lining of the colon. However, for the past two years now, indigo carmine has not been commercially available. Hopefully, it'll become available again and we can go back to using this dye. 
Now, chromoendoscopy is not difficult to learn. It's simply taking the dye, spraying it in the colon, and then using the characteristics of the dye to find the hidden areas. The difficulty is interpretation, because once you start spraying the colon, you often see abnormalities that don't come up on pure white light endoscopy. And you have to be able to interpret those abnormalities. Is it inflammatory? Is it dysplastic? Now, many of the gastroenterologists listening use narrow band imaging as an adjunct to identifying abnormalities during surveillance colonoscopy in non-IBD patients. There have been several studies that have clearly demonstrated that NBI is not a substitute for the dye-based chromoendoscopy. So you can't use MBI in lieu of chromoendoscopy. Much of what I just went over was reviewed in something called the Scenic Consensus Statement. The Scenic Consensus Statement was an international group of gastroenterologists, IBD experts, endoscopists, patients, insurers, pathologists, who got together and they published their recommendations simultaneously in gastrointestinal endoscopy and in gastroenterology. And I would encourage gastroenterologists who are taking care of patients with ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease to review that consensus statement, which is based on a very strictly evidence-based series of reviews of the literature. It remains controversial if all patients should undergo chromoendoscopy. If you're in a large group, I would encourage that one or two of the doctors in your group learn to do chromoendoscopy. And if you're not in a large group, you seriously need to consider referring high-risk individuals to a center where chromoendoscopy can be performed. Although it remains controversial, most people would agree that given the multifocality of neoplasia in patients with IBD, if you have a patient with prior dysplasia, you should seriously consider chromoendoscopy to evaluate for larger neoplastic fields. Patients at high risk of developing neoplasia, as I mentioned above, those with PSC, a family history of colorectal neoplasia, a long history of uncontrolled inflammation with mucosal damage, should all be considered as candidates for chromoendoscopy. Additional studies using outcome measures such as preventing colorectal cancer and preventing surgery would be useful to have, but at present, we certainly need to make decisions based on the best available information, and I have incorporated chromoendoscopy in my IBD practice for high-risk individuals. So when we think about managing dysplasia, should colectomy be performed for raised dysplasia? Dysplasia is characterized as either visible or invisible. Now, terms that we used to use like DALM, which is dysplasia-associated lesion or mass, adenoma-like DALM, non-adenoma-like DALM should be abandoned. And this is a recommendation from the Scenic Consensus Group. The terms that we would prefer that you use are endoscopically resectable or endoscopically unresectable dysplasia. And so if something is endoscopically resectable, it means that the gastroenterologist identified distinct margins, the lesion was completely removed on visual inspection after resection, histologic examination of the specimen is consistent with complete removal, and biopsy specimens taken from around the excised lesion show no dysplasia. So if a patient has endoscopically unresectable neoplasia, endoscopically unresectable dysplasia, 
then that person should be sent for colectomy. Those individuals with endoscopically resectable dysplasia can be managed in surveillance program. They certainly need to be willing to participate in regular colonoscopies because it is quite crucial that those individuals be followed up. Now, if you do chromoendoscopy and do take biopsies, let's say in areas to identify degree of histologic inflammation and find dysplasia, then we call that invisible dysplasia. And that's a more controversial area as to what to do. One last point I should make, and that's if you take a biopsy and you find dysplasia reported by one of the pathologists, it's important because that's such a turning point in the management of patients that those slides should be sent out to an expert who looks at GI biopsies on a regular basis because you do want to confirm that dysplasia is present. The identification of high-grade dysplasia in cancer, the inter-observer variability is actually quite good. But once you get to low-grade dysplasia, inter-observer variability between two pathologists can decrease, and therefore you don't want to make a rash decision without having a second pathologist look at those slides. So this is so very helpful, and many thanks to our guest, Dr. Francis Ferre, for joining us today to talk about surveillance for colorectal cancer and IBD. It was great having you with us. I am your host, Dr. Karen Heller. To access this episode and others in this series, and to download the ReachMD app, please visit reachmd.com. We encourage you to leave comments and share this program with your colleagues. Thank you for listening.